Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey guys, this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Show. How are you? Alex, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I missed out on the last uh, few podcasts because I was in Florida with the family doing the whole yeah, Disney blah. World and SeaWorld thing. Blah, 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 blah. Here it's like 20, blah, blah, blah. 20 degrees here in St. Louis and you're in Florida having fun. <laughs> Well, it, actually, it was cold down there too. You know, uh, oh. it was it was actually in the 40s on some days, um, which is kind of sad. And then some days we had 70s. So, but yeah, we spent 10 days down there, and it was cool. And what's even cooler is while I was while I was riding the roller coasters and the rides with the kids and going through all the fun things that they've got. Mm -hmm. uh, my team was able to put together two deals. So I love it. It makes it even better. I love it. And the guest we have on today is going to be talking about how he's doing deals in Tennessee from Denver, Colorado, which is going to be yeah. awesome. Uh, that's why I love this business is you can do deals while you're in, um, uh, in, in Disneyland in Florida. Um, yeah, or in the mountains in Colorado, or a cafe in Prague. Yeah, or it's just the fact that your business, your business is running while you're out having fun, and that's how you know you have a business, right? Exactly. And it's not for me. It's not a hundred percent yet because I still have involvement. Like I still got the email that had the the seller's uh, call from the answering service, and I had to email that to my uh, acquisitions guy and then tell and then kind of talk to him a little bit and say, hey, this is kind of the way we should approach this. Go ahead and tie it up. So I still had involvement there, yeah. but I didn't have to meet the seller. Uh, and I didn't. And, and as far as the, the sales side of it, um, I knew who would be the perfect uh, end buyer for it. So. You know, I, I have the domain vacationwholesaling.com. <laughs> Very nice. Isn't that awesome? That I, is good. I like that domain. But anyway, it is good. I'm glad to hear it. Your kids had a good time. Oh, yeah. But I will tell you what. When you have six small ch oh, or not, you have six people in the family and four small children. <laughs> yeah. I almost gave myself two more kids there. Four small children. That is not a vacation. That You know what they call that? Um, no. Survival. <laughs> How old's your oldest? Eight. Oh yeah, that's two, tough, four, man. six, eight. That is tough. So were you and, gone like all day, or did you break the day up? Oh no, we were gone all day. And then on one day when we were at Epcot, we uh, I, I logged what appeared to be twenty-one thousand steps, which is twelve miles walked in one day. Wow. How many strollers <laughs> yeah. did you have? Just one double stroller. One double stroller. Yep. Well, that's for the two small ones. That's that's impressive, man. I, I got to tell you, we have four kids as well as everybody might already know, and uh, we've been to Disneyland at I don't know at least four times or something, um, or places like that in California and in Florida. And last time we went to Florida, um, went to Disney World, 
and then spend some time at the beach. And when we were leaving, we asked our kids, what were the things that you had most fun with or remember the most? Oh, boy. Guess what it was? It was at the beach. Yes, being on the beach. (laughs) It wasn't the expensive Disney World tickets. No, they don't. (laughs) And the Disney World, all that baloney. No, no, no. They don't appreciate the fact that how much it costs or how stressful it is, uh, how hard it is for the parents to keep track of all the kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, But you know what? They shouldn't have to be, but this isn't a parenting podcast. It's a real (laughs) estate podcast, so maybe we should get to Mr. Brian. (laughs) Brian Elwood, ladies and gentlemen, hails from – well, you're from Tennessee, aren't you? Is that right, Brian? Yeah, I moved there in about sixth grade and went to middle and high school there, graduated from the University of Tennessee, moved back to Nashville for four or five years, and now I'm in Denver. Right. Why did you move to Denver? Uh, I just was kind of looking for a change, uh, and my girlfriend was as well. We both wanted to explore and not just uh, live where we happened to end up, uh, you know, for our entire life. And we kind of just put a three-week road trip together across the U.S. of about twelve different cities. I actually broke each city down on a spreadsheet by population oh. size and <laughs> weather, and you know the dorky way that us guys do things and uh and uh denver won you know out of all the cities that we visited you want to hear a funny story so we, when i was graduating from college i created a spreadsheet because i had like five or six job offers go figure <laughs> I mean, the, the job market was really strong back then but i had a i had a ton of experience work experience before graduating so that's why i got i mean almost everybody i interviewed with gave me an offer and uh so i created a spreadsheet and i matrixed the whole thing out like I figured the top five things that are most important to me, and I ranked each one of them, and I had this spreadsheet that would have shown me, like, if I rank each of these qualities or things based on the city and the company and the salary and the advancement, free potential advancement and stuff like that. And um, I put all of the companies. I was going to be completely unbiased. I was going to put all the companies in there and rank them all. And the company that came up number one <laughs> was my least favorite company that I didn't like. And so I said, oh, screw this. So I changed the uh, I changed the things around until the company that I liked was at number one. So spreadsheets can tell you whatever you want. Huh. <laughs> a good point. Anyway, that was uh, something to think about. And those of you that like spreadsheets, like like Brian and I do, uh, you probably understand what I'm talking about. So okay, you have uh, you're still in Denver. You, if you don't mind me asking, are you still with that girlfriend? Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. All right. And any kids yet? Are we going to get married? No. Or? Okay. Probably pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and start that. We have we're we're on the two to three year plan uh, as far as all that goes, and we have been on the two to three year plan for eight years now. Right Just on. keeps getting pushed out another two to three years um, because there's a lot of other fun things we want to do. Uh, you know, ever since we've moved out here, we've gotten into skiing and snowboarding on hiking a lot and have a trip uh planned to europe this summer and so good for you we're trying to squeeze all that stuff in uh before we oh man family but you can still do that stuff when you have kids kids the ultimate kids are the ultimate fun that's true and you are living proof of that because i've seen you uh in your rv doing deals recording podcasts traveling uh you know doing it from prague so that that's very true. I, it doesn't have to stop. 
Well, you're going to look back after you have kids and thinking, and you're going to think, man, remember those days we were so bored? Well, <laughs> 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 how did we survive being so bored? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. But kids are awesome, man. So hurry up, get married, get some kids, get you some. All right, <laughs> I'll get, get on it right after some. this. <laughs> but uh, cool. So Brian, you are uh, you're an active wholesaler. When did you get started in the business? Oh, you're not. Um, you're not. You're more than just a wholesaler, by the way. I should clarify. Uh, you you do a lot more than just that. But um, what? Uh, How did you get started in the real estate business? Uh, interesting story. So we uh, or I quit my corporate job after a few years and was just doing a lot of soul searching. I actually went and worked at like a grocery store because I was just you know desperate for a change. I had had so many jobs and done everything that everyone told me I should do. And yeah, I went and took a job that I knew I couldn't get comfortable at. Right. Yeah. You know, so that I could figure out a better option. And I met a guy there who fixed and flipped houses. Uh, he was younger than me. Um, really cool laid back guy and, uh, bugged him enough where he took me under his wing and kind of taught me how to drive around and drive for dollars and, uh, you know, mail out, yellow letters and and uh get leads for him was that frank hey no no frank uh came a couple years later okay uh and um you know he i'd get a small finder's fee uh for those deals but when i got my first one i, I quit the grocery store and dove in full time i was i had seen the light because yeah every other every other paycheck I'd ever earned in my life was from having a job with a fixed, you know, salary or hourly rate. And that was something I went out and hustled up and I was like, wow, you know, like if I just did this all the time, you know, this infinite possibility. And another year goes by, you know, we went out on our own and, and started our own business. That's when I partnered up with Frank and, um, we started flipping houses and buying rentals. And that was about four years ago or so. Okay. When uh, are you still working with Frank? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Frank actually moved to Denver too. His son lives out here, and he uh, loves Denver just like I do. And it was actually a coincidence that we both moved here. Uh, okay, we got our business running virtually. Yeah, awesome. So you got started about four years ago. So that was 2013, right when the market was 2012, 2013, right when the market was coming back up. Um, did you? find at that time was it hard or easy to find deals it was easy yeah it's a lot easier than it is now yeah yeah that's what i was trying to get to why do you think it was uh i I feel like there was less competition when the market was just starting to pick back up yeah um you could you could you could send out direct mail and your phone would just light up uh, and now, you know, our acquisition guys will go on an appointment and there will be 15 other letters on the table from other investors that you're competing against. So, you know, I think that's probably the biggest reason. Yeah. So you're in Denver now and you're still doing deals in Tennessee, right? Yep. Just in Nashville or are you out in other markets as well? Yeah, we've spread out to all the surrounding counties around uh, Davidson County, basically. Okay. So all of Middle Tennessee now. We kind of had to spread out because of the competition. Yeah. 
I've heard that Nashville is one of the fastest growing markets in the U.S. Is that still true? Or I've seen that as well. I've, I've seen it on several top ten lists. So yeah, I think it's up there. As far as like new construction for commercial and residential, it's just it's exploding. But yeah. um yeah, you know, Alex, this is the second person we've had on the podcast from Nashville. Do you remember the first one? Um no. Who was doing deals in Nashville? And you might not have been with me on that call. That Who was, was it? Brittany Turner. Do you know her, Frank? Or Brian? Yeah, I do. Actually, she was uh the she was one of the mentors, uh, along with uh, the other guy I mentioned. Oh wow! Uh, when we first got started, yeah, she helped me a lot. Yeah, Brittany's a rock star. She's still active in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I haven't talked to her in a long time, but I know they're doing a lot of development, and uh, you know, still very successful. Yeah, that's awesome. You, everybody listening to this podcast needs to go back and check out that podcast with uh, Brittany Turner. I forget how to spell her first name. It's different, but just look up Turner in the search box and listen to that podcast. It was amazing. She's she was at the time in her mid twenties and like millions and millions of dollars under her management and uh, just crushing it and doing much better now even. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So you're doing deals in the Tennessee area and you're doing them from Denver, uh, but you started out doing deals there in Nashville. Um, what were you doing back then to, to get your deals, to find your deals? Uh, back in the, back in the day when we didn't have a team built around us. Yes. When you're just getting started, you know, I, I continued to drive for dollars, drive around and, you know, write down the addresses of busted up ugly houses, uh, and go home. And I would actually handwrite yellow letters to those people myself. And I set little goals like every week I'm going to get a hundred new addresses and write a hundred letters and answer every phone call, try to go on an appointment and make an offer uh, on everyone I can. And that was as uh, complex as it needed to be back yeah. then in yeah. order to get deals. You know, like we, we talk about KPIs now on a higher level but you need them even when you're getting started. But it's just as simple as those few things, those few actions that you have to track. Consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's key. What were some of the early KPIs? Because that's one of the things I want to talk about with you later as we get into this interview. Like, What were some of the early KPIs that you would track? Or maybe you would recommend people who are beginning to track. Yeah, uh, so really the things I just mentioned. So leads generated and... By the way, driving key, around and KPIs are key performance indicators for people who don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so you need to generate new leads. That's the, at the core of you know your business's success, <clears throat> no matter what stage your business is in. And um, the the best way to do that predictably early on is to either get a list of absentee owners or just drive around and write down addresses uh, and then write letters, uh, and, and send them out. So literally like if you're just getting started and you're like, how do I know what to do to, you know, that's where it's going to be a good use of my time. Just get in the car with a notepad and a pen and drive around and look for busted up houses. Uh, Uh that people don't appear that they want and write down the address, you know, set a goal 
for however many is comfortable for you to get each week, right? It has to feel right to you. So maybe you say, I can only find 25 or 50 a week. That's fine. And then set a goal for how many letters or postcards you're going to send out each week to those addresses that you're collecting. And then here's, here comes the scary part. The calls are going to start coming in. Uh, and I've seen a lot of newbies just stop at that stage because yeah. they don't want to talk to anybody yeah. because they're scared that somebody will be mad at them. Uh, and so they let leads just sit there. Or they, might get, they, or they, they, they might get featured on the local news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in a second. Go ahead. Yeah. And so um, they will uh, just let the lead sit there untouched or they'll call them once. Uh, they won't follow up. They won't ever actually go on an appointment or make an offer. Um, so you know, to everyone that's listening and they're just getting started, I want to really drive that point home is that a lot of times you, you think you need tactical strategies. Like what does the postcard need to say? How often do I mail it? But really what you need is courage mm-hmm. you, in the face of that fearful period that you have to go through. Uh, I, I was absolutely terrified when I got started in this business. I remember throwing on a suit with dress shoes oh, wow. uh, just so I could, and I'd, be, I'd pace around the house in the suit um, making follow-up calls because I was, I needed something to like give me confidence and somehow wearing like a powerful suit and tie made a little bit of a difference. I know it sounds pathetic, but everybody has their own way for getting through their fearful period. Right. That's good. Um, and trying something new. And so for me, that was the biggest, or I mean the hardest part of this whole thing was facing the fear and pushing through it. Uh, the tactical stuff you can find that anywhere. You know, you've had tons of podcasts, I'm sure already, where you've told people what to do to get leads and to get deals. Uh, in my, in my opinion, that's the biggest thing that holds people back. That's good. Yeah, that's good. And even just standing up and walking around while you're talking to sellers on the phone helps a lot too. Uh huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Do so, what you got to do to where it makes sense for you. So the KPIs, I mean, there is no magic formula for that, but you're just talking about like tracking the number. If you want to do a certain number of deals, you're talking about like, all right, that means I got to send X number of letters a day or a week, or I need to drive, get to to drive uh, this many miles per day for, for dollars or um, talk to this many sellers, send this many letters, send this Mm -hmm. many texts and send this many offers, whatever it is. Right. Absolutely. You, you need all your leads. You can just put all your leads on a Google spreadsheet and just make sure you follow up them once every 30 days. Yeah. Every single person that will agree to meet you to go on the appointment, do it, even if their price is way too high, because it gives you good experience hmm. uh, of just going on appointments and running repair estimates, making an offer um, you know, that's lower than the person wants to hear. It's all part of being a salesman. Um, yeah, you can skip, you can skip that part and hire an acquisition manager. Um, I don't know if that makes sense for a brand new person to do. If I was starting over from scratch, I would do it that way because they work on commission anyways. Hmm, You would. Uh, And I I probably should mention this, Joe, Uh, you actually were, uh, our coach for a while, a couple years ago. Yeah, of course. And on our first coaching call, we broke down our business to you. And it was just Frank and myself doing everything. Yeah. And you said, man, you guys need to hire an acquisition manager. 
and initially we were a little resistant to your advice. I don't know why, just something about like, uh, it seems like we, something we should not let go of. Right. And we should, we, we need to be doing all that. Mm-hmm. We decided to take your advice cause we were paying you. Right. And, uh, our business literally doubled and then tripled, you know, over the course of the next probably 18 months. Where's my testimonial? <laughs> right here. <laughs> <laughs> I want like a picture with a you holding a check and smiling really big. No, I'm just kidding. That's yeah, that's key. I remember it specifically because you guys were doing so much work and you were doing deals, but you're like, we want to grow our business, but you, there's right. not there's not more than 24 hours in a day, and what you guys were just going at a breakneck pace. You didn't have a choice. It was obvious for me, and that's why it's important to get a mentor. I think right. Not not I'm not that I'm tooting my own horn, but. You've got to get other people who are outside of what you're doing that can look at, see what you're doing and say, whoa, you need this. Have you thought about that? And it was just a simple adjustment. Exactly. Yeah. Finding a, the, there's such a great power in the perspective of a, of a different person. Yeah. Looking at what you're doing. Cause like you said, it can be, it can take 30 seconds for you to find half a million bucks or something, you know, in, in revenue over the next year by making a, sh- a simple change. Hmm. Um, you, you do need to balance that with staying focused on seeing something through as well. I have what's called shiny object syndrome. Yep. A lot of people have it. And the next thing comes along and you know you get distracted from your original vision. So I've had to work a lot over the years towards um, you know maintaining that or keeping yeah. that kind of curbed to a degree. But yeah, finding a mentor. We have a we have a business coach right now. He's actually from the the E-Myth company, Michael Gerber's oh, company. Oh yeah, and yeah. He's uh, worked wonders for us, and, and I think we'll always have a coach in some capacity. And it's good once you get to the higher level too. You get people outside of the real estate space, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think it's healthy to have somebody that is maybe just an all-encompassing business coach look at your real estate business because the more time goes on, the more I realize that there's a lot of uh, time-tested business principles yeah. that apply to every business, not just yep. real estate. Like managing cash flow, you know? Exactly, exactly. Real estate investors are the worst at that. The- yeah, and I would bet that a lot of other industries aren't too good either. You've seen uh, like The Profit, you know, and Marcus Lemonis goes <laughs> in and looks at people's books, and they're yeah. like, I don't really look at the books. They they make me anxious. A lot of people say that, you know, about their finances, so... Oh, that yeah. is a very misunderstood area of business. The um, one of our mutual friends, Todd Toback, uh, was telling me one time he hired an outside business coach. No, oh, this is probably three or four years ago, and uh, he, Todd was doing like three or four different businesses at the time. And the guy who was not even involved in real estate, first of all, couldn't believe the margins he was making in his wholesaling business. And was like scratching his head saying, you, what? You're doing what? You're only doing this and that? And you are making this? And your net after overhead and expenses and marketing is this? And he looked at, so he was looking at all of the different things he was doing in his business from a purely cash flow perspective, from a net operating income perspective, right? And I uh, was like, what on, why on earth are you doing these other things? And he just kind of pulled back the curtain and said, look at it from my perspective. And it was a general business cash flow management financial perspective. And having that totally changed the way Todd did everything going forward. And his business has tripled at least um, doing way bigger deals because he's focusing 
on the highest and best use of his talents and his energy, of his money, his time. You know what I'm saying? So that's really good. Wow. Yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's. I took. Uh, in fact, I have. I start. I have one class, maybe two classes left, to get my MBA. <laughs> I I started my MBA education in two thousand and six. No, two thousand six. Yes. So it's been <laughs> twelve years now, and I'm just. I have one class left. I've been on the. Uh, Those credits still hang around. They don't expire. Yeah, I, apparently. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I've uh, so I, I it's a really ex, it's a good school it's a really good school here in St. Louis and um, it's one of the highest rated ones out here in this area but anyway I have one class left and I'm I'm gonna finish it not that it's gonna do me any good in fact I'm looking at my bill right now the bill for this last class is forty two hundred bucks so yeah it's just one class uh, well one and a half classes there's this little minor class I have to take. Like for stupid. Anyway, so it's not going to do me any good for a professional career standpoint, right? But I just want to finish the stupid thing. I want to get it done. But one of the coolest things I get out of the out of these classes is um, the financial management aspect of it, right? And one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is like um, understanding the more of the business side of a real estate investing business, like. Understanding the books, understanding the cash flow, that's so important. And as entrepreneurs, as small business owners, and as real estate investors, isn't it kind of hard to grasp that and manage that? Does that make sense, what I'm saying here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can quickly recommend a really good, uh, simple book. You may have read it, Joe. Did you read Profit First by Michael Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I've read. Awesome book. I've read almost awesome. all of it. I, I okay. <laughs> it's a really good book. The only reason I didn't finish it yet is because I'm still working on getting that stuff done that he said to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I know how that is. You don't want to go forward in the book until you do those things. Oh, but it's, yeah, it's really good. Book. Such an aha moment. So that that concept of taking your profit up first uh, for me encompasses a lot of uh, what business cash flow is. You know, management is supposed to embody. Yeah, uh, is that. You're, you're basically actively controlling your margins, watching your margins, and kind of setting them up front with that technique so that you cannot get swallowed up in expenses. And if you can't take a profit on every deal off the gross revenue from that deal yeah. and still pay your expenses, then you, you actually have to cut your expenses or find out where you're not getting an ROI on either marketing, payroll, or overhead – uh, and 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 cut that or adjust it to yeah. do so because a business is an investment just like a rental property is an investment. It's huh. a combination of salaries, marketing, and overhead that's supposed to bring back more money than it costs at the end of the day. And so the taking your profit up front method is just a way of guaranteeing that that uh, stays that way, right? That you, that you do always bring back more yeah. than the business costs. Yeah. So I, I love the simplicity of that, what that book teaches. And you forget the MBA, just get that book. And, uh, so many of us do it backwards, right? We, we, uh, pay our overhead and expenses first, and then we, um, pay ourselves maybe a salary and then maybe we pay taxes and then we take whatever profits left out of that. Um, 
But the way he orders it in the book, just as a basic simple as simplification of it, is you take your profit out first, which could be maybe 10%, 15%. After that, you pay taxes. Isn't that right? Uh-huh. Then you pay yourself. And then you pay whatever's left. Overhead, your expenses are last. And that really forces you then at that point to figure out whether you have a business that you should be in or not, or cut your expenses or get out of it. Really good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, we, I can, you know, we've had a bloated business model that was eating up all of our revenue before, and we've trimmed it back and let it get big again and trimmed it back. And, um, you know, what, a question. Go ahead. What was it that was eating you alive? The honest answer to that is that I didn't know. Um, there was too much going on, uh, and the the KPIs weren't. We weren't really living and dying by the numbers. We would just kind of look at the P and L at the end of the month and say, "Dang, you know, negative two thousand dollars in July. Like this, this sucks. You know, how did that happen?" Um, and but but the way we got there and the book talks about this too, was when we had really good months where the sales are really strong, we would justify new expenses. We say, you know, it'd be nice to have a guy who just analyzed leads all the time. It'd be nice to have like some, a sales assistant to the sales reps, or it'd be hmm. nice to, you know, just throw a bunch more money at direct mail and not really pay attention to whether or not we're getting a return. And then as soon as a lean month pops up, you know, you have a P&L that has a negative number at the bottom. Yeah. Um, because your expenses, um, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, support them in a sustainable way. So the, the, I guess if you're wondering like, how, how do I know when to grow my business? How do I know when to hire somebody, start spending more money on marketing, et cetera. It's when you're already getting a really good ROI on the stuff that you've already got. And, and it makes sense because you have bottlenecks, you know, big bottlenecks in the business. Like, oh, my time is being taken up by meeting with sellers. So I got to hire an acquisition guy. But I have a lot of profit booked for up for the next three to six months, you know, on the books. Um, so I know I'm going to have the revenue to pay that person. I mean, that's how you know. Yeah, you have to strategically do it. You know, it, it's not one of those. And I appreciate you saying that because <clears> – <throat> It's not like you, you're just like, okay, I got to hire. Well, is there a really a question of, can you afford to hire? Is that a real question or can you, is, is there a blanket answer of, well, you have to hire because that's what you need to do. But it does come down to a little bit. Can you afford to hire? Do you have enough profit booked to, to afford it? Right? Yeah, Absolutely. We have a great document. Um, this might be a little more advanced, but it's for you know anyone who has a business a little further along. We call it our financial forecast, and it's it's like the weather forecast for our business for the next three, four, five months. And so we have a separate tab on a spreadsheet with all the projected pipeline revenue for each month, what's going to close that month, and then all the expenses. We have you know a budget for marketing kind of run at a certain amount of overhead each month uh salaries and commissions are fairly predictable so i can go to our financial forecast and see how much money we are projected to net in february march april may and june of this year right now 
and that gets updated every week because deals always change, right? They get moved forward or back or they fall out or new ones get added. Um, so it's never going to be exact, but it's like the weather forecast, right? It gives you a general idea. So if you know if it's going to be 20 degrees and snowing, you know, you can prepare for that. Um, you know it's not going to be 70 and sunny that day, right? You know it's, it's going to be pretty cold one way or the other, whether or not they get it exact. Uh, and that's the power of forecasting out your future revenue and expenses and, and net profit. And then you can plan for things ahead of time instead of reacting and freaking out and saying, oh, we ran out of money. You know, you, you have to stay way ahead of that. Yeah, that's really good. It takes the stress out of the business. Um, anybody who is not – in fact, when I sign up a new uh, coaching student – I send them a book, The Pumpkin Plan. Um, I think I might add a second book and send them the uh, Profit First book. Definitely, uh, is, is that important? That's great. Um, so we were talking about KPIs a lot in this call, but what are some of the KPIs you use now, Brian? Just a quick summary of, like, what are the numbers you look at today? Okay. So leads per week? How many leads do you generate per week? Uh, what's the cost per lead? And how many leads do you need to that would result in one closed deal? Uh, those are those are crucial because what, if you what, know... What do you consider a lead? Uh, someone who reaches out to you via you know one of the marketing channels you've got out there uh, and gives you their name as well as their property information. Okay, good. So that they're, you know, you not just like someone who left a voicemail and says, my name is Bill, call me back. That's not a lead until you talk to him and he says, yeah, I might sell my house. You know, he has to at least have some interest, be willing to cooperate uh, throughout the process. And then you can call it a lead and you can put it in your database. Right, good. Okay. So leads per week, cost per lead, number of leads per deal. Anything else? Yeah, and then so if you think about your business like an assembly line, that kind of moves along to the sales process. So what numbers you, you've generated the leads, what matters in terms of sales, and that would be uh, things like appointments attended each week, uh, contracts signed each week, pipeline revenue added per week. Because all these should be translating to a yearly goal. Like you say, I want to do a million this year or two million or 500,000 or whatever your goal is. You back that into leads, the leads you're going to need to hit that goal. And that'll give you the best chance of hitting your goal is being realistic and saying, well, dang, I'm actually going to need to generate 2,000 leads this year if I'm going to hit that goal. How am I going to get 2,000 leads? Um, but... I'm trying to think if there's any other average profit per uh, deal. Yeah, average deal size very important. Uh, that's something we've kind of tried to set at a minimum uh, nowadays uh, of twenty thousand and up. Sweet, and look at that. Twenty thousand yeah. minimum per deal. Nice. Yeah. Well, this is rehabs basically okay that we're doing right now it's primarily what we do is close on deals and right uh, do a, a renovation that's 10 grand or under we we tried doing really extensive renovations where we would put 100 grand to a house and we still have <laughs> a couple of those that we're trying to get closed and 
at least get our money back. And so we kind of learned that we need to ease into the rehab game gently and learn, you know, how to do a, a $10,000 renovation, especially doing it virtually. It's, it's challenging. We have a good yeah. team, but there's still a lot we have left to learn. So the reason that that number is high is because, you know, we are actually taking the, pro- the property down, borrowing money to purchase it. And so we have to have a certain margin built in there. Right. That's why so I correct- a $10,000 property renovation. You're talking maybe kitchens and bathrooms? Yeah, I guess the simple way I look at it is what's the most effective $10,000 you can put into it? That's yeah. What's the first $10,000 it needs? So if it has a hole in the kitchen floor, you're going to have to address that. Um, but, but some of the ones we buy are in pretty good shape. They just need to be cleaned up, painted, uh, landscaping. Um, and yeah, we'll do kitchens, floors, bathrooms. Um, but we're trying. Are you also using private money to take these down? Yes. Cool. Um, you, one of the, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to clarify. You're more than just a wholesaler when I was introducing you at the beginning. But you're a deal finder. You find deals, you buy them, you fix them up, and you resell them. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, we started out wholesaling primarily, and over time we've kind of shifted to a business model where we just close on everything and uh, and renovate them, like we said. Yeah, um, and then put them back on the MLS? The or? Right, so our buyers are now just retail, you know, um, just whoever the realtor finds for the deal basically a lot of the people that buy a house that's you know had a light renovation like that are people who want to come in and do the rest of the project themselves so it'd hmm. be like like you know how a lot of people watch fix up fix and flip shows now yeah and they want to come in and pick the granite countertop and the right backsplash and and everything um, but they don't want a house that's just completely jacked up you know that has bugs crawling all over it and stuff so we'll deal with the worst problems and then uh you know let them take care of the rest so it's kind of like wholetailing is that the how you would phrase yeah. it? yeah 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 wholetailing is just where you do nothing but just put it right back on the market uh, we do a little more than that um but we do, we're not full-on rehabbers just because um you know, and we've we've talked to some very successful rehabbers who do hundreds of deals a year, and um, they say it's a really messy business to do, uh, well, especially to do virtually, but to do period, it's very much possible, but it's not something that I can just wave a magic wand and grab a few systems from you know somebody at Collective Genius and all of a sudden be doing a. 150 rehabs a year <laughs> you know what i mean like it's, there's a lot that goes into that and so we want to we want to be careful and ease into it yeah well it's a fantastic model i know a lot of wholesalers that um you know they they need bigger profits per deal and uh to stay competitive and to make money in this business so they're they're buying the homes yeah. they're doing a little bit to them taking the stink out making it lot not look as scary and sticking it right back on the mls yeah, the the benefit like when we were uh you know when you're when you're just looking for properties to resell to an investor, the you're limited to that buyer pool, but when you put something on the MLS, you sell it, you can sell it, still sell it to investors of course, but you also are open up to every single person that could buy a house and that can get uh FHA loans and conventional financing uh afford to spend more, which actually allows you to scale your business into areas where investors are not active. That doesn't matter 
because there's still a lot of retail sales going on in those areas. Um, so you can, you know, you can take on new areas basically instead of yeah. focusing on these tight niches where maybe gentrification is happening and there's lots of teardowns and you're looking for deals to sell to investors. It opens up the coffers to to where you can market to and do deals. I think when you when you switch your business model that way. Yeah. All right, so Brian, can we talk about something that happened to you? And I'm laughing. I'm sorry. It's not funny, but it kind of is. <laughs> sure. It wasn't at the time. Uh, you were featured, uh, not so flatteringly, on the local news. And I've always been annoyed by these local news. I've never liked no local news. They blow everything completely out of proportion. It's like breaking news. Something like this cat got stuck in a tree or something. And, and they try to make a mountain out of a molehill all the time. And so especially I do not like these guys that do the uh, you paid for it or you asked, you know, like those kinds of, uh, what do you call them, like shock. They go out and they, with a camera and they try to embarrass people and catch them when they're not allowed to, when they're not, when right. aren't expecting it, right? So you, this happened to you. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, uh, long story short, there was a investor that we had bought some deals and sold two and there he had a, uh, an accountant i think who was angry at uh, him for some reason and he thought that the nature of business that we had done with the investor was like against real estate code and so he took all of our deals to the local news to basically i guess get payback on his former employer and then the news lady dug in and you know found my name and came and you know tried to ask me about the nature of the deals and uh i didn't know what to say you know so i just said i i declined to comment yeah um but i didn't think we had done anything wrong uh you know i but think you if were... i could redo it over again i, uh -huh. I would have done the interview or answered whatever questions they had but um you know i was told by somebody like oh if that happens you know you just decline and so that's what i did um but so you the, think the real estate, you, you think you should have you think you should have because you were walking your dog you were walking your dog outside she must have been like uh -huh. waiting for you to go outside of your house or something like that and uh, right. ambushed you while you were walking that's so stupid it's just immature I was so mad when I saw that but do you think looking back you should have answered her questions that's interesting yeah I think so because uh, you know I don't. Want to? I don't want to operate a business where we feel like look like we're trying to hide anything because we're not. Sure, you know, sure. if if I ever learned that something I was doing was against law or against code, I would stop doing it. You know, yeah. I don't I don't live that way in any other area of my life. Right. Um. So, I, but I think I created the impression that there was some something shady going on by just refusing to talk to her. It was a little surprising to be walking your dog and there to be a lady uh, with a camera at the foot of your driveway when you get home. It's not the best place to answer real estate Good business grief. questions. <laughs> I mean, could I, I've thought about that. Like, if that ever happened to me, what would I do? <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, if that happened to me, I would probably tell him, sure, I'd be more than happy to talk to you if you turn the camera off. And I'm wondering if that might have been a good answer or not. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Because they do it, they, and they'll intentionally show the camera. They'll, like, zoom in real close to your face to show all of the, your imperfections. And then, you know, when it's on the TV screen, 
anytime you see somebody's face really uh, big in the screen, it has this um, uh, effect, like a subconscious effect to make you like leery of them. It's, it's all how they, it, it's just stupid and obnoxious. But uh, I, I've thought about, yeah, well, if that ever happened to me, maybe I would answer their questions if the camera was turned off and just be nice about it. I, I didn't think you did anything yeah. wrong either with how you handled it. But it's just – so then what happened um, after that? Nothing happened. You know, well, she was, also, she, was, she was also showing a bunch of posts. She talked to a couple people. Didn't she interview some people that uh, you had bought a house from or something like that? Yeah, yeah, she did. And uh, those, those people actually, after that interview, called us back and said, you know, was that all true? You know, because we're not actually mad at you guys. And it, it was the weirdest thing. I mean, the, after that interview, those same people that she interviewed called our acquisition manager and told him that they had cooked him a pie and he needed to come pick it up. Like, I mean, they... They, they still liked us. I, 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 it just didn't make any sense. Wow. And you also they had baked, a bunch they of... They baked him a cake. <laughs> you also had a bunch of deals under contract, didn't you, at that time when that news story broke out, and you didn't lose one of those deals. No, it didn't actually affect our business at all. Um, there was people who had seen the news story who the very next day, you know, would sign a contract with us, and um, I don't awesome. think a single contract we had fell out. Um, I will say that that was, along with just hearing other news in the market, has been somewhat of a, a catalyst that got us to just decide, you know what, even if we're not doing anything wrong, if there are some people out there that think that, you know, tying up a property and reselling it is unethical, then it might be easier to just close on everything, you know, and, yeah. and just do it the traditional way. So that's that's what led us to change our business model. It's, uh, that, along with a lot of other just reasons like i like being able to control the customer experience from start to finish not rely on another investor to bring the funds to close because if they back out on the day of closing then the seller's up the creek you know with no backup plan right uh, so, so that's you another, another benefit of that were you you did they report you to the real estate commission were you investigated yeah yeah um well yeah that was a separate thing and they didn't find any problems with any of our deals um we uh i called them and uh we talked through everything and then a little later we did get a a fine yeah but it was for like two thousand bucks and what they said was um you aren't allowed to buy a property in an llc and resell it um without and immediately resell it you have to do it through a realtor really that was as that was as much as i could understand and this was the like the head uh attorney for the the tennessee real estate commission wow um yeah they said that was the that was because they they looked into every say that again you're not allowed to what like honestly that's as much as i understand it um um, buy an l buy a property in an llc and turn around and sell it without a realtor's license. It doesn't make any yeah, sense. There's some, yeah, as far as like, you know, they that gray area where it's like, did you make a commission or not? Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Because you're not selling property. What are you selling? 
uh, contract. There you go. But yeah. if, so that's, you know, yeah. So some of them we would close on with our own money and then resell others. We would assign. Um, so I think, I, I think assigned, they were okay with the assignments, but the ones would be closed were the ones that, um, they said. <laughs> so they didn't like the ones you closed. You said, right. Cause I think when you actually close on a property, um, there and, and then resell it, uh, in an LLC, there needs to be a realtor involved. I think I even asked her, like, you know, what if I, we had just closed it in our own name instead of an LLC? And she said that would be okay. But that's the bottom line me, is yeah. I think I think now that a, seems completely opposite to what I would think. Yeah, I think there's something that has to do with the LLC being a business, you know, and the business can't make a a commission or something like that. Uh, it's I think the bottom line is that it is, it's it's a little unclear uh, in real estate commissions uh, as well. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a gray area, obviously, um, and that's why I, I mean, I I know you teach wholesaling, and I'm not like saying there's anything wrong with it, but at this point, I'm a, I'm of the opinion that you should just go ahead and switch your business model to closing on everything because yeah. there is a general business principle that states. You're supposed to um, look at any market trends that are happening and adjust ahead of time. And you can look at like Blockbuster uh-huh. as a company who did not do that. And where are they now? And look at the taxi industry and everyone else is just getting taken out because they're ignoring signs that yeah. things are changing. And I think that that's another thing that's changing. And so we want to be ahead of the curve. That's a real good point. Listen, yeah, I, I I have to end this interview, and I feel bad because there's some more things we could talk about. Brian, do you want to do a part two? I'd love to. Good. Excellent. Let's do that. And, and Alex, we need to do a part two with you as well for Sneaky. sneaky. Yes, we do. <laughs> we're we're going to do another podcast on Sneaky Wholesaling Tricks. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I'm 17 Wholesaling Hacks. Oh, Sneaky Wholesaling Hacks. No. <laughs> wholesaling hacks not sneaky just wholesaling hacks. <laughs> we were talking about the name what to call it i think hacks would be better than sneaky especially in the context sure. of what we're talking about right now sure <laughs> <laughs> that's funny all right brian where can people go to get more information about you um do you have a website or an email or something you want to give how about your cell phone number <laughs> just kidding. yeah yeah absolutely um, so I did uh, recently launch a blog. It's myname.net, brianelwood.net, and I've just begun my coaching business as well. I'm trying to be like you, Joe. Uh, you're my right role on. model. So I want to be become a coach to entrepreneurs and, and real estate investors. And, um, and so you can find out more about my program on the site. Uh, I am going to take on four new coaching students uh, probably over the next three months or so. It's about all I have time for. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And and, I, and you, if you want to email me, it's just brian at brianelwood.net. B-R-I-A-N-E-L-W-O-O-D, brianelwood.net. Awesome, two Brian. Two L's. Okay. Oops. Glad I got that. Two L's. Two O's. All right, man. Thanks, Brian. We'll do a part two. Because uh, you guys are still doing a lot of deals, and I want to talk more about how you're finding these deals and how you're managing them from Denver. 
doing them in Nashville. That'll be really good. I know a lot of people will be interested in that. Let's do it. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, guys. See ya.